0: Welcome back, listeners, to uh, Global Lab. And this episode, we're going to be talking to uh, Caitlin Thaney from Digital Science. Caitlin, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, so, first of all, your background goes all the way back to the Creative Commons organization, doesn't it? Yeah. So, I, my experience with Creative Commons is it's a sort of an initiative to provide an alternative to existing copyright law. Is that how you got involved in it? So,
1: Creative Commons really came about when content started to be rapidly moved into a digital format and starting to be born digital. We're talking 2001, 2002. And really was there to provide the infrastructure to allow people, largely in the cultural space, we're talking film, text, music, images, be able to share and remix and reuse and create in different ways.
0: So it was really that sort of reuse of content, the the mashup and that kind of thing, that, that precipitated it.
1: That was where Creative Commons initially... You know, that's what it re- really sunk its teeth into, and that's what it became known for. Now, fast forward five five or so years, Creative Commons was making an incredible difference and having an, an impact in that community. And we started to think about what those principles could do for
0: scientific research. Which So what are those principles in brief of Creative Commons? What, what are they striving for?
1: So beyond copyright thinking more broadly about sharing and reuse and what that can do in terms of the exchange of knowledge and how we are able to manipulate and really think of things in a digital way. So to give you an example, our main mission for what we were doing at Science Commons, which was the science wing at Creative Commons, um, was thinking about how we can make the web work for science in different ways and think about how we can use intellectual property more to our advantage in the same sort of way that copyright was turned on its head by the Creative Commons licenses. Not all of that. There are some... Definite parallels for scientific research think of the open access movement and creative commons was really fundamental in providing the legal architecture For uh, the open access movement, but when it came to things like data when it came to things like Making it easier for people to share and exchange biological materials. So lab mice cell lines DNA plasmids There's a different construct there. It's not always based on a copyright system. In, in the case of data, copyright in many cases does not even apply. Yeah. But there was still the same sort of leadership and clarity that needed to be provided and um, tools provided even, and, and we did a bit of tool development while we were there, but to at least provide guidance in the way that Creative Commons did for the cultural and educational movements for the research enterprise.
0: Okay. So the impact uh, in terms of the creative enterprises is that you're moving away from this model of copyright as something which protects or, or hoards intellectual property and is providing a mechanism for sharing intellectual property. Is that the way that you see it?
1: So moving from the all rights reserved aspect of, of, of copyright and giving, empowering the individual, empowering the creator to decide what permissions, making it more of a permission-based system so that people can say you can use this for anything that you want to under the sun as long as you give credit where credit is due, a norm that's really fundamental to scientific discourse. Or say I want you to be able to use this but to have a, a legal implication so that you have to be able to relicense this under the same license so that I know that it's going back into the commons, and I know that that's going to perpetuate. Yeah. And that yeah. kind of comes from the open source community
0: um, yeah.
1: in that regard.
0: So, in terms of how that applies to science, what are the first sort of impacts that you saw from applying that into into, into the scientific research domain?
1: The immediate first step was to move into scholarly publication and how people transmitted uh, and were able to share and disseminate scientific articles because that's really fundamental to what we do. Um, We came along, we're working with some of the top folks that were pushing the open access agenda and helping to not only provide the legal implementation but also the guidance and and serving as an advocate in the community for that. Um, Beyond that, we had to convene a number of different research um, organizations and also people from various disciplines to have them help us at least craft what our strategy was going to be. You know, what were the main roadblocks that they were facing? The immediate thing that when you think of taking something like the Creative Commons licenses and trying to map that into science,
0: Hmm. we
1: immediately thought, okay, well, papers, you know, publications, and maybe patents. But that actually turns out to not necessarily be the problem. Um, You know, there is a problem there, but the fact that, there are still patents that are being filed for and papers that are coming out of the system shows that something's at least making its way through but we wanted to be able to focus much further upstream to make that system move more efficiently so that we could really dramatically affect the output to make research itself operate more efficiently so you're not just just operating
0: on the end and use of uh, the end products of research you're acting on the process
1: exactly and understanding that the bottlenecks were really much further upstream in the way that people actually were able to access their materials or or not yeah um using some of the Technologies that we really take for granted in day to day life, such as Mm. Google for search and Amazon or or eBay to be able to source materials, oddly enough, those those technologies and that awareness don't exist in the same regard in research, and it was really slowing things down. Um,
0: (coughs) I mean, the the process of scientific research—a big part of it—is building on other people's research methods, and so one of the arguments. That I've heard for so uh, for for our listeners who aren't familiar with open access is this argument that when you publish a scientific article, the results of your research, it should be open to all, you shouldn't have to pay for a subscription to a to a journal, which um, in order to get access to that, especially if it's funded by a government body or, or a charity, or something like that, um, and uh, and there is an argument which says, well, if you are going to do scientific research, you need access to that material straight away, don't you? So it is already affecting the scientific process upstream. But you you seem to be talking about more general problems of of access to that information?
1: It's not necessarily one or the other. I mean, the work that we did was very much in parallel. So focusing on access to content, focusing on access to materials, whether that's the biological materials, those tacit materials of research, the physical materials, which uh, very quickly started to get... Eight, well, you start to get the ability to have them integrate into a digital process by giving them certain sort of tags and identifiers, et cetera, okay. but also speaking about data, which I know is something that you care quite deeply about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then beyond that, looking at the way that we interact with this information, and so the kind of three main prongs were focusing on the content, focusing on the materials, and then also focusing on the technology and how we can use our um, use our scientific expertise and also understanding of the technology that we have there to really as close as we possibly can get this to operate on the backbone of the web so that we can query it and get the same sort of results as as fast as you know as others would be able so to So is this like
0: a sort of um, is this ties into the sort of semantic web and Yes so that, that, yeah and the concept behind that is that you have not just text let's say but you have context around that text or context around that data which which gives you uh, some ability to query it in a way that you couldn't if it was just a bunch of numbers or just a bunch of text. Is that is that a, a, a fair description of?
1: It's a fair description. It's yeah. really trying to make sure that the information that we have is not only interoperable to be able to mash up with other information that we have out there, but that it's yeah. also machine readable in a capacity yeah. that we can um, optimize how we how we use it and how we're able to repurpose it down the road.
0: So the organisation at the moment, Digital Science, that's taken that work on scientific access, the technologies behind it, a step further, hasn't it?
1: It has. Um, Our main focus... So some of the work that we did at Creative Commons in the science wing was focusing on how we can make research more efficient using policy, using hacks to intellectual property constructs. But
0: also some... So what do you mean by that?
1: So in terms of trying to find better means to get around um, the contract issue when you're exchanging physical materials. There's a really messy, non-standardized system. So if you're talking about a cell
0: line or something like that, in biology.
1: So to be able to exchange that from university to university, there are standard agreements that exist, but it can clog up the process just through negotiations from university to university by adding you know, mm. certain sort of language. So making sure that we were able to provide templates in the same sort of way that Creative Commons has a license chooser you can specify and so creating tools like that that made it much Mm. easier for people to be able to push that forward or with the open data work with Creative Commons uh, the public domain waiver CC0 Mm. and providing some of the guidance around that So what is CC0? In a nutshell what
0: does
1: that does that license mean? So CC0 is actually not a license it's a a waiver so you're waiving all of your rights and placing it very Um, very deliberately and very openly into the public domain, but with the same sort of bells and whistles that you'd find for any of the copyright licenses. And so there's, um, for any copyright license that Creative Commons puts out, or even the public domain waiver, there's three different layers. There's a machine-readable layer. There's what we refer to sort of tongue-in-cheek as the lawyer-readable, like the legal code and then, right. there's the, then there's the actual human-readable side of it where you find mm. the icons, where you find it being really approachable so people can very quickly say, yeah. understand and creating those zones of certainty so people understand what rights they do and do not have over information, yeah. but also people coming in it from the outside know what they can do immediately with the information because it's easily tagged. And, and
0: do you, do you yeah. find people c- can negotiate that, that they can make sense of it quite quickly? Or is that a, 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 have people adapted to these new... Licenses, or are they still kind of coming to terms with what, what's possible?
1: There are a lot of um, a lot of efforts going on right now to make sure that that's at least normalised. Because yeah. when it comes to being able to,
0: it's quite. I mean, the, the Creative Commons license as a concept is quite mainstream now, isn't it? Because as you say, it's been around for ten years, over ten years.
1: So the, when it comes to the application to scientific research, I mean, there's a lot of buzz right now going on about the Creative Commons Attribution License or CC BY for the open access movement and that being the legal... Yeah. Um, the, the legal and that being the only, the, the only the requirement co- is that you attribute... Is the only attri- yeah. That you only attribute the author. Um, when it comes to data, it gets a bit murkier um, yeah. because, you know, in, in the U.S. there's a very firm understanding and, and firm guidelines for what does and does not quantify, qualify as, you know, for c- what copyright applies to. So there has to be creative mm. expression, most data facts are free, et cetera, et cetera. But there but, are... But there isn't
0: any sort of uh, processing, any sort of uh, collection done by the author that, that constitutes a, an act of originality? Or?
1: Not necessarily. So this okay. is where it gets more complicated. So in the U.S., it it veers towards that the default being copyright does not apply to data. Now, yeah. this, again... It depends on the information that you're looking at. If it's if it's the raw output coming off a machine, the argument is that copyright does not apply. Mm. If it's you know, say you're looking at a map, but Mm. it's a map that you drew. Technically, does that qualify as creative expression? I mean, these are all territories that we're moving
0: into. That's quite relevant, actually. So, (laughs) and there's and there's (laughs) but
1: it becomes really difficult to tell because Mm. is it an exact rendition of something that is taken as fact you know that that's where it gets a little murkier and there's not a ton of legal precedent for this Mm. because it is in the grand scheme of things really really new yeah but what you have um, where it gets more complicated is that all around the world there are different database directives and flavors of copyright and restrictions when it comes to data that start to make it really difficult which is why we set the bar really, really high, and we got quite a bit of pushback on it because putting, going from having rights over your information and researchers are inherently protective of their data, not wanting to get scooped and yeah. gets into the whole incentive yeah. problem, but saying, well, you should put it into the public domain because it's going to be interoperable, it was a really hard case to make. But in terms of all of the other different directives and licenses, et cetera, that is how you that is how you can achieve maximum interoperability. But there are, I mean, there are some really interesting directives all around the world. One of them, the the Sweat of the brow or Industrious Collection provision says if you can prove that you've exerted a certain amount of effort, then copyright magically comes down and applies on what you have. Um, There's um, database directives in the EU and sui generis provisions. Uh, There are a number of others. as Crown Copyright, which comes down in certain cases, but also in others. And if you you can waive it, there are workarounds, but... It's not an easy space to navigate, especially mm. if you're looking at a, a global collaboration, which most research now
0: takes, yeah, takes in.
1: And so if your data can't speak to each other, mm. you're at a bit of a loss. And so trying to make sure that we at least can create a, a zone of certainty so people know what they can and cannot do with information mm. and just get that get the law out of the way and let the innovation happen.
0: I think, yeah, I think it's interesting because as an academic... Um, the sort of currency of the academic is the is the paper, is the research paper that gets published in a in a journal. But um, the work that goes on is data generation. I mean, almost whatever field you're in, you do experiments, you collect data, you interview people, you collect data, you or you take existing data and you finesse it in some way and, and, and analyze it. Um, and I'm interested. I, I almost think that there's enormous value to a, a group of academics organizing and analysing data and then offering it to the world. But that's not seen as an academic output in the same way that uh, research papers. And I wonder whether, uh, and, and there is, as I say, this resistance of, mm. I don't want to put the data out before I've written my five or however many, how many papers on it. So I, get, I can wring everything I can from the data before I make it public and share it with other people. And um, uh, This is a rather long-winded way of asking, do you think that's changing? Do you think academia and research institutions are starting to see the value of data uh, as an output, as much as a research paper is as, as an output. Absolutely, uh,
1: it's oh, that's good news. It's it's a t- well, I'll say it's a tough argument. So yeah. I mean, back looking back to open access, where we had a lot of doors shut on us, when that pushed through to a government mandate level, it became an uncomfortable conversation still for some. But at least mm. they couldn't avoid it anymore, and we're seeing that still happen. We're seeing that happen now with data with different not only directives that are coming down from funding agencies, so take the National Science Foundation in the US for for example, they now are mandating that you have a data management plan or you will not get the rest of your funding if you can't point to where your information is going to be held from taxpayer-funded research.
0: Well, I think there's an interesting conflict there because research projects are typically relatively short-term, three to five years, right? Um, but having a, a mechanism for storing legacy data and a platform share, le- sharing legacy data, you hypothetically you might want that for 50, 20, years' time.
1: Well, it's funny that you mention a platform for sharing and storing data because at Digital Science we support a project called Figshare, which is very quickly not only becoming something that on the grassroots side is of immediate use to a researcher because it's a yeah. free community-driven open data platform. Um, yeah. You can put everything from your... You know, your data sets and your Excel spreadsheets to images, videos, grey literature, etc. Um, and you can upload that for free. What's
0: grey literature?
1: Grey literature, so posters from
0: oh, right, posters okay. and
1: other conference proceedings. Those, not those 50, that. shades, of gray. No, not right. 50 okay. shades of Grey. No, not 50 Shades of Grey. But uh, not only can you upload that, have it meet various metadata standards, but you can get a DOI a digital object identifier, yeah. you know, so you can be able to plug that into citation mechanisms, you can track it mm. in the same sort of way that you would a paper, you can get credit for it in the same so sort you
0: of way. Get, so um, entities like Google Scholar will be able to track the references to, to a particular data set or an image or a poster? You
1: can even just track it on the Figshare website. So there's a number yeah, of different okay. vanity metrics there, so you can see how many people have looked at that information, how many people have downloaded that information, how many people have shared that information. And so okay. what, we're, what the interesting thing on that side is... You know, of immediate use to researchers that want to be able to put their information somewhere. Institutional repositories, I don't think, are necessarily the best fit for this. Yeah. And they're not, they're not easily searchable in a way that allows for modern-day global collaboration in the well, same my capacity.
0: Expe- my experience of, of institutions is that, especially with research institutions... They don't tend to have the same level of centralized IT support that a company might, because a lot of researchers are pretty IT savvy. So they have their own way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And you end up with a very fragmented mm-hmm. system of, of of data storage. Or, I mean, you know, and the same is is true of code. Uh,
1: it's uh, secondary. Storage. It's secondary to yeah. what they think about. To, it's secondary to, the research to outputs, which research
0: outputs, which of the papers. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: But um, so now the interesting thing is, is that not only is it a tool for the for the researcher to interact with, and it's a It's free. It's not tied to an institution. Where we've also had other projects, say Google's data project, where that was striving to do the same thing and democratizing it, allowing for anybody. You didn't have to necessarily have it be your peer-reviewed results. You didn't have to necessarily be tied to an institution or to a publication or even to a discipline. But that went the the way of the dinosaur very quickly. Now, what Figshare, the interesting thing there is that they're they're now working with publishers who are under increased scrutiny on the reproducibility side of things yeah, yeah. and whatnot, because it's becoming a lot easier to go through a paper when you do peer review and not just kind of guess and check as you look through the data to say, does this make sense as a sanity check? But in some mm-hmm. disciplines, you're moving a lot closer to being able to hit a red button, rerun your computation yeah. and see, is this, are there any missing components?
0: I saw a very good talk by Chris Bunston and Cass a few weeks ago, who said that, that very thing that, that not just the papers should be available, but the data... The, the the code for for running it, any libraries that, that are necessary to support it, um, and that yeah, there will be reproducibility. But do you think that's really, that that responsibility really fall on on the heads of the reviewers?
1: So it's interesting because you you mentioned before going back to um, some of the work at Creative Commons and, and broader societal pressures to be able to pick up on what you've already or what's already been published in the scientific discourse and. Yeah. and be able to build upon that and having the necessary components. It's sort of a no-brainer now, but with just additional scrutiny to make sure that you have all those additional components because yeah. people are starting to realize when they try to go and, and replicate this research that they can't. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's honest, you know, honest mistakes of not necessarily mm. detailing a certain bit of the process that's yeah. so yeah. intrinsic. But otherwise, there are a number of other things that just weren't. Tailored The system wasn't tailored for in terms of data. Mm. And so what Figshare is doing, and it's working with faculty of a 1,000, with the Public Library of Science, there's a few others in the pipeline, serving as now their data back end. Because publishers have been trying to figure out what to do with this for quite some time.
0: Mm.
1: I would be so bold to say that their efforts to date have not been as successful as they were anticipating. I mean, that's not their area of expertise. That's not... Yeah. It's, it's a big undertaking. And so sure. they're now working with Figshare, which is not only getting that supplemental information from these publications pushed into Figshare, making it more discoverable, giving it a, a citable endpoint, et cetera, yeah. allowing people to interact with it on that side. And also, Figshare, all the data that's uploaded is either under CC0 in the public domain or if copyright applies under the most liberal license, which is in line with open access. But having that link now from publications, you can actually visualize the data in the browser while you're looking at the paper, but also having that data live on Figshare and having that link between the publishers, understanding that they need to provide this service and working with another organization like... The one that we have here at Digital Science yeah. is giving it much more legitimacy and also helping to grow that community and grow awareness, much more so than, say, efforts by Google Data to just do it on their own for good faith in the community.
0: Well, I think that's a very inspirational uh, point to uh, finish the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me, Kayla. It's
1: a pleasure.